Welcome to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the before and after some of the world's most effective transformation processes. I'm your host, Paul French. In this special Transform It Forward miniseries, I'm stepping back from the content we've produced so far to connect the dots. For the next few episodes in the series, I'm taking a look back at some key clips from past interviews that share common elements or discuss similar industries. We've already taken a look at the transportation industry and how it's evolved in recent years thanks to new and innovative technology. Next up, let's take another look at retail. Using clips from these interviews as our guide, we'll be taking a look at the evolution of retail over the past few years. Get ready to gain a new perspective on the retail world and where it could be headed in the future. One of the most obvious changes the retail world saw since the beginning of the pandemic era was a mass exodus from in-person retail shops to exclusively online shopping. Of course, online shopping was massive pre-pandemic as well, but in the year 2020, the shift to online as the preferred mode was accelerated in a major way. Mike from Christie Sports shared some of the changes and tech upgrades they had to make in order to keep up with this revolution. We pride ourselves on having an exceptional customer service and in-store experience, and we get very high ratings, but we were not leveraging technology. So it was you, if you rented skis from us, you probably saw a paper-based system. So we're still providing great experience, but it was paper-based. And on top of that, our online experience was not where we wanted it to be. So as soon as COVID hit, we realized, and the leadership of Christie Sports realized, we needed to invest heavily in technology. And uh, I was working with Matt Gold, our CEO, and that's when his vision of a digital transformation started. So within a very short period of time, we went and replatformed our e-commerce environment. At the same time, we are actively investing in the uh, technology for the in-store experience uh, because what was important to me and our leadership team when we looked at digital transformation was this didn't just create a great website and online experience. Because if you had that great experience, you walked in our store and you're filling out a paper form to rent your skis, it, it, it just lost what it really meant. So we feel and uh, felt that then and still feel strongly that we have to do it complete end to end to have, have that uh, digital experience. And the e-commerce platform was very old legacy, in-house developed, you know, not a scalable system, not something you could grow e-commerce on. So that was a fairly easy decision to make. And uh, in our first 90 days here, we were replatforming e-com. And then on top of that, we were evaluating other systems like our business intelligence tools, our office uh, collaboration tools, uh, you know, the video meetings and, and, and so on. It was not hard decisions early on. You know, the systems would get harder as we move, but uh, it, was, it was pretty easy to identify where our gaps were. Aviva Fink of Reonomy had some fascinating predictions about the future of the retail industry. Despite the major growth of the online shopping world in recent years, Aviva believes there will always be a place for exceptional in-person retail experiences, no matter how advanced our technology becomes. And I guess the, the one asset class that, that's kind of uh, for me, the one that's, that, that hangs in the balance the most is really retail. And I think retail is interesting in that there's the social element and the experiential element that people enjoy. And I, I say that, you know, very much with like a personal bent or a personal bias there, but there, there's so many types of retail, right? There's the, there are the restaurants, there are the 
activities. But then there's also just even the in-person shopping experience. And that's something that isn't really replicated with an online experience, but just how much retail space is needed to support a positive and and a, a delightful shopping experience is kind of unknown. So I think there the question is, will the metrics change in the square footage allotted for every you know, X number of people in a population. And I believe University of Texas in Austin did an interesting case study or a research report on that last year. I'm just looking at population sizes and total square footage needed to support that for a retail space. I think that may be something that changes. And so how will that retail space be repurposed? That's beyond my pay grade. I think that depends on each uh, owner operator and developer to decide. But I I do think that we will see significant changes in how retail space is utilized in the coming years. I think about like the Best Buys and the Apples of the world. And like, they really have done a great job of building out an experience when you go into the store. You're not just going to like try on a sweater. You're going because you want to interact with their product experts. You want to actually touch and feel the technologies. And I think that the retail brands that will retain very strong in-store activities or just a see high volumes of visitation will be those that continue to master that and provide that as a differentiation in their experience that they're offering. A great example of the kind of experiential retail Aviva is describing comes from my interview with Robert Gerward, Senior Vice President of Distribution at Sweetwater. So a little bit like Zappos, which is fully owned by Amazon, Zappos distributes from really kind of a central hub just south of Louisville. And so Sweetwater has a similar model to that. And we've got a new distribution center that just came online in February of this year in, of 2020. So we're operating with, you know, a new physical infrastructure and, uh, you know, all the equipment and processes and uh, systems that support that are, I would not hesitate to say, um, you know, somewhat state of the art and uh, rival really what I've seen in some of the larger kind of organizations. We are uh, rapidly growing like many players in e-commerce, especially this last year uh, with the impact of the global pandemic um, surrounding COVID. Really, even prior to that, though, there had been significant growth. So what drove the the new distribution center was just a business and being able to accommodate increased outbound shipments to customers. And I I think one of the the key things for this year and and what Sweetwater has done that's just been absolutely fascinating is with the way that we've worked with those uh, upstream suppliers or vendors of music instruments in a unique way that was really prompted by the uh, by the global disruption in, in the supply chain. I, I mean, uh, re- really a couple things there. So we, we have seen an uptick in our volume and our sales uh, revenue, as well as our outbound shipments when people stayed home and people were kind of rediscovering their love for music and wanting to play instruments. We also, you know, as brick and mortar stores were less available to you know, have consumers come in and play and buy music instruments, people tried online music retail and, and found that it was a great experience for them. I, I would say really what has helped from a, you know, just having a banner year at Sweetwater has been the relationships that our merchandising and kind of inbound operations team and the supply chain have had with and do have with our vendors. So deep, deep relationships. And we were fortunate that we had really great, strong cash flow all year so that those vendors shifted what output they did have, their, their manufactured volume. They shifted a lot of that to us because we were willing to accept it, receive it. And um, we had a new warehouse that we could put it in, which was fortunate. And we were also able to pay our bills on time. So they appreciated that. We do have a little different model than uh, at least 
I'm familiar with at, at other places like an Amazon or a Macy's and that our sales interface really and, and kind of sales model and customer uh, really I call it a customer experience model is, is a little bit different in that somebody can go on to the sweetwater.com website and order something essentially 24 by 7. But the piece that makes us, I think, a little bit unique and it plays into then how we ultimately um, work our uh, supply chain and ship those products to the customer. We have a very large percentage of our sales that come through person to person interaction. So we have sales engineers who are technically trained and um, really understand uh, music and music instrumentation and the technical components of you know the music industry. And they spend a significant one-on-one -on -one time on the phone with customers and coming out of those conversations and, and these customer relationships are uh, often for life for you know, five, 10, 20 years. And as the sales engineer and that customer develop a relationship, it's a, a combination of a, just a personal relationship as well as a technical relationship. But those interactions allow us to uh, really be specific with the offering to that customer. And so sometimes that's a more expensive item. Sometimes it's a, it's a less expensive item but I do think drives the unique Sweetwater kind of customer experience difference is really, you know, starts with that sales engineer relationship with a customer uh, to get to know their exact specific needs. And so many times a customer does know what they want when they come online or, you know, talk to that sales engineer, but often it's a dialogue with a, a expertly trained sales engineer who's gone through months of very detailed specific training to provide a service and, and ultimately a product that just really meets that uh, individual customer need. How that translates into the supply chain then is like most companies and because we're in a competitive environment, once that sale is initiated and gets presented into the distribution center, customers do expect because they get this from other online retailers like an Amazon or Macy's, they want quick, reliable service with good tracking and they want the product and the packaging to arrive really in pristine condition. But again, really that unique uh, interface and, and relationship between the sales engineering team and, and that group of customers is I think ultimately what drives that ability to you know kind of work across different types of music instruments and provide a great solution for customers. A big part of providing this great customer experience, Robert mentions, is making use of the rich sources of data that we have at our fingertips today. More than just about any other industry, retail needs to leverage available data in new and creative ways if they hope to compete and thrive in this new competitive landscape. Aviva explains the kind of data that retail players would be wise to leverage as they transform into digital-first organizations. I think that's what everyone's grappling with right now is what alternative data sets do I need to leverage to make smart decisions? And I think people were really coming around to, you know, using mobility data. Okay, that's going to be helpful. Let's use demographic data, maybe some transaction data. Now I can build out this profile of different neighborhoods, zip codes, buildings, census tracts, et cetera, like however granular they wanted to get and make really smart investment decisions and also recruit or, or really try to attract the right tenants. It was also great for site location on the on the occupier side. Now it's a little bit more complicated because you're like, well, have behaviors just inherently changed? So you're you're trying to marry the data that you have with this unknown where people have been on lockdown. So there really is no data. And I think that that creates a really interesting challenge and people are trying to figure out interest, ways to work around it. But I do think it's becoming kind of table stakes that if you're trying to be thoughtful and data-driven about your investment decisions, you're going to be leveraging 
multiple dimensions of data to understand consumer behaviors, brand performance, and site location behaviors. And that includes the mobility data, the transaction data, the demographic data. And I think in terms of each asset class, it's a little bit different in terms of what you're looking for that signals go, no go decision. But thinking about some of the investment decisions that are being made, even in terms of which markets to be in, you want to stay in you know, major gateway cities, do you want to move to the really exciting, rapidly growing secondary markets? Where do you want to be? I think some of the things that they're looking at beyond some of those metrics I already mentioned are things like number of graduates with degrees in STEM, number of patents filed, just other things that say give signal to the fact that like these are markets where there will be a lot of growth because the labor force is there to support the types of jobs that are becoming increasingly popular and also pay at a specific rate where they're going to be able to pull in talent from outside those markets so that way there'll be continued growth. So I think that those are other data sets that that folks are looking at and definitely should be looking at. I don't think anyone's had to make significant changes to their technology stack or to their the data that they're acquiring yet because a lot of those changes are going into effect now. Um, but I do think in terms of like what people are worried about and how they're thinking about working around it, it's definitely making sure that they have the appropriate opt-ins or opt-outs so that way they can say that they're you know offering best in class experiences and offering the best in terms of privacy and protections to their consumers. I think that's important. And I also think that it means that brands are going to want to own the customer's experience as well, where they're not just going to be relying on different ad networks to support them, but they're going to want to own that experience. And I think about Sephora as an example of that, where they, granted, they advertise everywhere, especially to, to demographics such as mine, but their app is an increasingly popular channel for them to collect information. And you as a consumer are very likely to give them information because that helps you get the right coupons and discount codes and you know special birthday emails, et cetera. So if they figured out a good way to incentivize the consumer to share information, but I'm more likely to do it directly to Sephora who can offer me that benefit versus to a social network that doesn't give me that benefit and would pass along my information to not just Sephora, but all of these other competitors that I may or may not want um, having access to my personal information. In Mike's world, the process of managing data has changed significantly over the years. Thanks to cloud-based technologies, he says his team has become more and more focused and agile. Yeah, I have been doing this a long time and uh, it has changed quite a bit. You know, the old days of the CIO's role was to take care of infrastructure, data centers even. Projects were run, these huge IT massive projects that were waterfall and delivered two years later. And now, you know, with the migration to the cloud, you're letting third parties manage. Ideally, you get to where third parties are managing all your infrastructure to where you can focus and move from what I would call project management over to product management. And it's a pretty big shift because if I can get out of the infrastructure business and I can get to the cloud, then I've become more nimble, uh, much more agile. And then we get to where we're managing the product, where we're almost embedded in the business and partnered with the business, as opposed to the, the old silos to where you lob a request over the wall, IT disappears for three months and delivers it. You know, those days hopefully are gone. 
and uh, we're much more agile. You know, it's uh, you know, or a combination of agile, agile fall or something, but it's uh, you got to be much more nimble than those those big projects, much more collaborative. When it comes to any major industry transformation, change management is one of the most important pieces of the puzzle. After all, to really set a transformation into motion, you need the right people on board to steer it forward. And the change management is is really hard because you also have you have a lot of different factors working with and against you. On the one hand, people want to be successful. Everyone wants to be successful, so that's good. But you also have a lot of internal and third-party stakeholders when you're rolling out a new technology because of how relationships support each other outside of an organization where you have an LP and a GP relationship. So if one is adopting technology, how do you ensure the other one's also on board? So that way you can exchange best practices and kind of speak the same language. Then you have the brokerage team. If it's not in-house, it's third party. You have the property managers, et cetera, et cetera. And so you've built this web of different entities that need to adopt the technology, depending on the technology, all at the same time in order for that technology initiative to be successful. So just because one of those nodes has decided that, yes, we are committed and we are investing and we have everyone on board, you now have to encourage all of those entities that kind of move outside of your organization to also buy into that same vision. And I think that's a a very unique challenge. And it means that people who are spearheading technology initiatives really have to be great at relationship building. It's not just about, you know, getting internal buy-in, which in itself requires good relationship building, but you have to be able to go outside of your organization and help drive change too. It it was an interesting time because we had quite a few new members of leadership coming in with some pretty strong uh, changes. And it happened so quick that uh, it was important that we communicate throughout, you know, what the vision was, you know, what, what is the end state and, and try to paint a picture for everyone of, of what the end looks like and, and, and show everyone what good looks like. And then if you can communicate that well, then you can overcome a lot of that change management. But as you probably know, Paul, change management's maybe one of the toughest parts of technology changes. You know, you're moving a lot of parts and people are used to doing things a certain way. And as you go through that, it's probably one of the more difficult parts of uh, some of these big projects. How we went about this is we did what we called an MVV roadshow. And the the entire leadership team, eight of us, traveled to the Pacific Northwest where we have stores, Salt Lake City. We went to markets uh, like in Vail, Breckenridge. And the entire leadership team would spend an entire day with groups from each of those areas. And we would explain, you know, the MVV is the mission, vision, and values. And we would have those conversations and we would open ourselves up to any question, any conversation. And, and like I said, spend an entire day with, uh, I think we met with over 800 associates during those roadshows. And I think it was very important. It was uh, not just as we're on the stage in front of them answering questions, but then getting those one-on-ones and letting them tell you their concerns and addressing them. I think that went a long way and it's still going a long way towards that. You know, we had people who have been with the company quite a long time and and they wanted to understand, you know, we're investing a a lot in technology. And they're like, well, how did we choose to invest in technology as opposed to remodeling my store or building a new store or the associates, you know, what is driving this and what and what do we expect out of it? 
were some some of the harder questions. You know, it's it's tough during COVID. You know, some people you know lost some time at work, and uh, and then we're coming in saying we're investing heavily in technology, and uh, you know, you have to, you have to have good rational reasons why you're doing it, and uh, what what the end looks like. Finally, Robert made some great points about change management, reminding us that at the end of the day, taking care of and appreciating your people will take you far in any business transformation. I would say this for a um, an e-commerce company, anybody working in supply chain, I would really almost just say anybody in business or anybody that works in an organization, even a nonprofit like the American Red Cross, I think that it starts with having a true appreciation and understanding that there's got to be for sustained success, an appreciation and uh, taking care of the business um, and the metrics and the dollars and the service and all of those things, which we typically focus on equal to that and not in competition, but dovetailed and supporting that is you have to take care of the people and you have to treat people well, you have to do all those soft things. And there's that old saying that the soft things are the hard things. So I think what we learned, and especially during this last year, is that because Sweetwater is a company that focuses on both, and we do have great internal, uh, what I'll call kind of employee relationships, and there is this sort of family environment, and we do have just a, a really great team of people, and we work hard in recruiting to get that. But because of that, it allowed people to very quickly deal with ambiguity. So I think in the next 10 years, the world will continue to have advances in artificial intelligence and um, different modes of transportation and driverless trucks and any number of advances. But I think really the key is that in the middle of all that, people still develop the molecule, people still develop the software, people still write the code. At some point, if you lose track of the fact that people are behind the technology, people are behind the instruments, people are behind the pick pack and fulfillment of orders for customers, you will quickly suboptimize the the overall uh, performance and sustainability of that organization. So I don't think it's necessarily anything new. I've just found that working in multiple industries and with different companies that a formula that has worked everywhere I've been is if, if as a leader in supply chain or leader of a company, if you will commit to taking care of the business and <laughs> capital A and D and take care of the people, you will be successful. You know, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. And I spent 20 years in the chemical industry and semiconductor industry and electronics and, you know, some really technical industries. And in all of those instances, there were massively smart women and men in, um, who were research scientists of some sort who developed the technology or the new product or the new assembly. Those people still are people and we're complicated uh, and we're massively exciting at the same time. So great leaders and great companies, I think the key is yes, technology and new systems and new tools and new approaches. And in terms of transforming an industry, including the supply chain organization, that will come. But you know, if you want to adopt that new technology, you need a team who has a mindset that says, I'm open to change, I'm willing to change, I'll be part of that adoption as opposed to the technology exists, but I've got a, an organization that resists change, then, then I have a problem. It's always exciting to get different perspectives on where an industry might be headed. And we were fortunate to speak with Mike Aviva and Robert. Here are three key takeaways to remember. First, the pandemic fundamentally altered the way we interact with brands. Although the online shopping world has seen a massive surge, 
The experiential element of shopping can't be replicated online and is still very important to consumers. Brands like Apple, Christie Sports, or Sweetwater, which create personalized human and sensory experiences, will always succeed. Second, leveraging the right data sets in a post-COVID world is critical. Behaviors have changed, so managing multiple dimensions of data is vital to be thoughtful about your investments. For example, stakeholders in the commercial real estate industry are now leveraging mobility data, demographic data, transaction data to make more informed investment decisions. And third, at the end of the day, all transformations come down to change management and relying on people to drive them forward. Companies need to invest in their people and ensure that they're on board with the changes if they hope to see that transformation get successful. Thanks for listening to Transform It Forward the podcast that gives you an inside look at some of the world's most effective transformation processes. If you like this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Paul French, and I look forward to being with you next time. Transform It Forward is brought to you by Axway, who believes that in order to create the most value for customers, partners, and employees, you need to open everything by securely integrating and moving data across a complex world of old and new technologies.